Hey gang, welcome to Big Brother and the Hodling Company, the podcast about music and Web3 and trying to fend off Big Brother. I'm a Keegan Voice. Today I had a great conversation with John Eads, who spent close to seven years at the eminent Abbey Road Studios before co-founding The Rattle, which is an organization that's done everything from, from running physical spaces in London and LA to running a venture studio to launching their own tokenized network of supporters. Uh, we chatted about his journey and about how he got here from being a nerdy dreadlocked teenager in suburban London who loved maths and manual labor and playing the trumpet. So I hope you all enjoy the conversation. Here we go. It's great to have you here, John. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I always, I always like to start this thing from the beginning and just hear about you know, your background, your roots, where you're from, where you grew up, and how you first uh, got involved with music. <laughs> All right. Uh, I always try and avoid the uh, the obvious. Like most people's stories, like mine, start with, I played an instrument when I was a kid, which I did. <laughs> uh, trumpet was my thing. And from there, I mean, it's not a particularly cool instrument. Uh, I played in orchestras, played in big bands. I enjoyed it, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't the um wasn't the thing that uh, you were respected for or, or uh, <laughs> made popular for at school. Um but then started playing guitar a bit, uh ended up uh playing in bands, that kind of thing. And yeah, that got me interested in recording and production technologies. Um I was fairly academic all the way through school. Um I found maths easy which I, I don't say to um to try and be big-headed it just came naturally I, I don't know why um and then um yeah physics and um and music and combined all those together and um found this course which is what I ended up studying uh, my undergraduate degree at Surrey University in the UK uh, which was a very um academic take on the subject of music and and audio engineering so we learned all sorts of stuff i'm talking the red book standard for cds uh the biology of the inner ear um the physics of room acoustics uh, the, the list really goes on a bit of computer science and um yeah i that got me really really interested in the the technical underpinnings of the whole i wouldn't have called it industry or or market back then um yeah, i would have used other words but i i strayed away from the creative side into the technical side hmm. across my uh, studies i actually ended up working across a summer vacation as an electrician with an old uh, friend of mine from back home and hmm. completely fell in love with manual labor if i'm honest and i still uh still spend my weekends renovating my house and it's not <laughs> a chore it's a, it's a joy and um put all that together and um i did a, my placement year during that uh, undergraduate degree at abbey road which is a very well-known name and uh, i felt very lucky to be given the opportunity to work there i actually worked across two places initially there was another studio called Olympic Studios in Southwest London, 
Uh, and I mentioned that because while I was working there, I was doing three weeks there, three weeks at Abbey Road, back and forth. But while I was working at Olympic, it shut down and I was working in a technical role, fixing things, recapping consoles, uh, that sort of stuff. And that was a real eye opener for me. I hadn't until that point really considered the economic forces at, at work in the music mm. business or the music industry because I thought that that studio was flourishing. You two were in for four weeks at the end. Pete Doherty was there. The Killers were recording. It was, it was that one of those kind of places. Like whether you like those artists or not, it was a top tier studio. Mm -hmm. um, and then it shut and I, I was sent on a new course. I realized I didn't want to be so exposed, so vulnerable um, as a technical engineer five layers removed from those economic forces. So I went on a journey of discovery to try and understand um, yeah, the business. And my life since then has really been all of that stuff that I just described smushed together. So the technical interest, uh, the commercial interest, and then obviously rooted in, in music. Hmm. Cool. Um, you know, taking one step back, I'm curious, as you're talking about the trumpet, you know, as a non-cool <laughs> instrument, <laughs> I mean, there are some pretty cool trumpeters out there. Uh, I mean, I'm curious why you picked the trumpet and, and uh, one, if it related at all to, to your interest in math and, you know, as well as physics and actually like really diving into, you know, how the instrument is used as a tool and, um, and who are some of the trumpeters that, you know, perhaps inspired you to just, you know, start playing? Yeah, I, you know, I wish there were really good romantic answers to those questions. But <laughs> really, at least in the British school system, you're not, as far as I can remember, given much of a choice. Hmm. I think you're presented probably with a few uh, different instruments, but I think you're more or less frog marched into picking one of them it wasn't like i had a period of three months of trying out drums and then mm -hmm. clarinet or anything like that so i think i just f that fell on my lap i don't think i well i don't remember it being a conscious choice and it certainly wasn't inspired by um a love of trumpet i mean this mm -hmm. is when i was about hmm maybe 10 years old or so i think it may have been earlier but i i came from or come from a fairly relatively speaking musical family mm. so all my brothers and sisters i have two brothers two sisters they all play instruments we all learnt to the grade eight standard so a fairly decent level of competency uh, a fairly early age and um yeah most of us still play in one one respect or the other so it's more a kind of um yeah, the, 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 my family's culture, I suppose, of music being respected and enjoyed and being felt as something that all, all children should uh, participate in. So yeah. it came from that angle rather than really a personal desire to pursue it. It became, it became that over time, but that wasn't really the genesis. Mm. And yeah, the, 
the kind of physics and and maths of how instruments work that that didn't click in for me until way later into yeah. my late teens and maybe even early 20s so sorry that's not a, a <laughs> compelling romantic answer but that's the truth <laughs> no worries i'd rather have the truth sure um, just thought maybe you were you were an aspiring miles davis or something <laughs> <laughs> no I, not not really and to be a jazz musician is in my mind quite a different discipline to mm. what i majored in which is more playing from score and playing right, in right, right. large ensembles and i don't think i ever really had the confidence for it as a child as a, as a younger man mm. you you're a you're very exposed you're 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 a front person in in some regard as mm -hmm. as a solo jazz player in well certainly one of those instruments and I never, I never wanted that. I was fairly shy, fairly academic, fairly nerdy as a <laughs> as a teenager. I mean, to to make matters worse or better, I had dreadlocks at the time, <laughs> and so I was a kind of a, an oddball, especially living in suburban southeast London. <laughs> um, never really felt much of an affinity to to people around me, and. Uh, maybe i could have overcome that with just a, a massive bout of confidence I, I guess i found that later on in life but at mm. that point yeah jazz just felt like a kind of petrifying idea whereas sitting behind a music stand playing off a score and doing a decent job of it that was something i could deal with yeah i hear you jazz still terrifies me <laughs> <laughs> i love it it's so love much jazz. respect so yeah. much respect for jazz musicians for sure absolutely um and You'll have to unearth one of those photos of <laughs> your dreadlocks <laughs> for lead for this uh, for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, every everyone who I ever say that to, and I can't believe I've actually said that <laughs> on a medium that more people might hear. But yeah, everyone who I mention that to asks the same question, and mm. there are photos in existence. Am I going to show anyone? I'm sorry, no. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> you have to pay my parents some money, I think. Yeah, yeah. There are certainly photos of me that I, I, I hope <laughs> yeah. go no further than they than they have gone. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. So, so you've had this realization of you know of the music industry, and you want to be closer, at least at least an understanding, uh, you know, kind of the business side of of it. Um, to you know to pair that with your technical understanding of of how music works, and and you know some of the tools that 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 go into facilitating you know recorded music um so what happened after that after like you know how did you start pursuing that path and you know that that education and how did that culminate you know as a next step in your career yeah sure so as i say i was what i think is quite lucky like very fortunate to to be able to as what was more or less my first ever role to work at one of the biggest most recognizable brands in music and that was a career defining moment for me i mean abbey road that is mm -hmm. and um i got on with them well i got on with my manager at that time simon campbell really well and i've got a huge amount of respect for for simon and ended up staying during that placement year for a little bit longer than I should have, maybe for 16, 17 months. Uh, I was helping out closing out Olympic. And so I, I built a really good relationship with those guys. 
when I graduated, I did take a little bit of time out. I did some long distance cycling through Europe and mm. kind of enjoyed a, a period of time there. And then as it came around to, as I came around to the realization that I needed to start earning some money, uh, move out of my parents' house, etc., uh, a job came up at Abbey Road in what is called the audio products department. Mm. And that's the, the team, the department responsible for all of the software and hardware uh products which carry the abbey road name so that's sampled instruments plugins some hardware recreations and then a few adjacent um products so um there have been i don't think i'm saying anything that i shouldn't say but there have been explorations into uh the automotive audio sector and mm. so i was involved in a lot of um those kind of conversations and those kind of the, the development and uh, uh, management of those products. I worked into a guy called Mirek Styles, who still is at Abbey Road, and again, huge amount of respect for Mirek, and I owe him a lot. But um, when when I joined that team, it was going through a, a transition phase away from a model of let's develop these products ourselves effectively by contracting a freelance developer and marketing them through our own channels it was the department was moving from that model to a effectively a, a licensing model licensing out the brand and the intellectual property involved out to companies like waves and native instruments and um that happened within the first year or two of, of me being there and that was another quite significant chain of events for me because it left me with a bit more spare time quite truthfully and I'm a fairly motivated kind of guy and I don't like downtime <laughs> I don't really like sitting on the sofa and not achieving anything mm. and that's not a matter of pride that's just how I'm wired I'd, I'd love to be able to switch off in that way but anyway it left it left me with a bit more spare time and I started wriggling around and exploring what I could do inside the building and um, yeah, I started building a relationship with uh, a, a systems developer at Abbey Road called James Clark, who at the time, and this was, wow, probably 2012, 2013, something like that. Um, he was working on source separation technologies, mm. which now have become a lot more, I don't know, mainstreams the word, but uh, more generally um, understood. Back then, the idea of unmixing audio was, to most people, and, and this is to, to most of the engineers at Abbey Road and most of us there, um, it seemed like a very distant, uh, unrealistic possibility. The, the idea of being able to pick apart a mono file into, into its constituent parts just felt um, unachievable. Mm. We've come a long way since then, um, various, versions of um, machine learning have been applied to that problem but back then uh, it was a different suite of technologies that james was using but i saw him um, working away largely in his own time because he was just a curious mind working on that um that problem like how do you unmix audio and he and i built a, a strong relationship and um 
through me trying to figure out how to help him move more quickly and really me trying to figure out how to help him compete with others working on the same the same kind of problem uh and as i came to understand that's people working in an academic capacity people working in corporate innovation teams people working in their bedrooms and so on uh and through me trying to figure out how to help him and 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 how the how his competitors were being funded and how they were operating that that's what got me interested in this big question of where where does new stuff come from Hmm. who works on it who funds it what drives them and yeah what what does that bleeding edge really look like on the ground and i i was like i say fairly fairly technically minded at that point but i was commercially very naive and i didn't know any of the stuff that i know now about incubators and vc funds and uh public funding uh, philanthropic funding all this stuff and i went on a journey of discovery to try and figure it out in in this spare time that that had opened up for me and i was very very lucky actually that another key thing happened during that period i i was starting to get a little bit frustrated because i was working away on this but i wasn't seeing the opportunity to turn my my quest into anything significant at the studios i didn't see a job role opening up Mm. at that point around understanding innovation and driving innovation but thankfully around the same time and uh, it wasn't great for everyone involved but there was a management uh, management team switch around the end of 2013 because universal music had bought emi which previously owned Abbey Road, it bought out EMI and therefore became the owner. So this is Universal Music. Mm. They'd left it alone for a while, left Abbey Road alone for a while, but then they decided to switch out the the, the managing director and a lady named Isabel Garvey took over. And for everyone in the business, it was a kind of a moment of nervousness. But I fairly quickly built what I think was a, a really strong relationship with Isabel and she's another person I've got a huge amount of respect for and I owe a lot to and she saw my my quest my kind of naive quest into this new brave new world of innovation and whatnot and said well yeah I, I kind of see what you're doing here I don't think you're going about it quite the right way but I love your energy etc she said look I, I'll give you a bit of time um, here's a bit of a budget, go out to some events, go to some conferences, try and figure it out. And at that point in time, I was mainly speaking to academics. I was going to places like Queen Mary University in London, who've got a huge audio research, um, postdoctorate research center. And um, yeah, Salford University are experts in, in acoustics and, and building relationships with those guys and trying to put in bids for public funding. So h2020 out of the eu um, the european commission and innovate uk out of the uk etc and isabel said look that's that's all good but it's a bit too slow for us what about startups Hmm. what about the whole world around entrepreneurs and it i feel again incredibly naive um uh, now given that i really knew nothing about the whole ecosystem back then but I dived in, 
and went to TechCrunch Disrupt and started reading Mashable and all, all this stuff and and started going to Techstars demo days and, and whatnot. And this was maybe the tail end of the glory days for that kind of ecosystem. It, it had matured quite a, long to, uh, a lot by that point, by the point I got involved. It wasn't the kind of late 20, late 2000s, early 2010s, where the, the energy was super high and it was all still super new. But it was still fascinating and um, high octane, and I've completely fell in love with the energy of mm. of that whole space. And sure, there there was there are a lot of criticisms of the culture around startups, and and a lot of them are a Jew. They're they're all um, fingers rightly pointed. But as much as you can criticise a lot of the behaviours and the, the the output of of some of the um the development of, of startups and whatnot the the culture of optimism is something to be cherished and something to be fostered and i completely fell in love with that right. so i i got persuaded or, or kind of uh, drawn towards uh entrepreneurs and and startups more so than say hardcore academic funded r d that's where that's what i wanted to do initially but got drawn towards startups and all of this came together in in really Isabel and I, with the support of lots of other people, Mirak and others, um, deciding to to launch or tiptoe into launching a, a department, and we called that Abbey Road Red. Hmm. That quickly became the name for the incubation program, which is what we decided to to go to market with. And I I didn't know what incubator was, and <laughs> we. We designed an incubator. I certainly, I think Isabel understood, but I felt like I designed an incubator without knowing what one was. And doing things from base principles in that way is something that I really try and encourage everyone to do. But when I, I ran a very small business with my wife for a while in antiques and, and vintage, we used to put on these events, completely different. I, when I did that, this is when I was about 21 or so, 2021, mm. um, I had no idea how to keep books, like no idea of the, the basics of accounting and mm-hmm. made the whole thing up. And it irritated my brain and, until I figured it out. I didn't learn it in books. I just overcame the frustration by just mm. hardcore graft. And I feel like I've got a much better understanding of double entry bookkeeping and la 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 than, than I ever would have if I tried to learn it out of a book that kind mm-hmm. of frustration is that the, the mother of learning and mm-hmm. um yeah the same thing happened in in this portion of my life with designing out an incubator it's like how, how do we as a company how do we support startups how do we support entrepreneurs what can we offer and so we decided to go out with this will you give us a little piece of your company we'll connect you through to all of the people that we know as a brand through universal music and abbey road and it caught wind it caught the wind and i ended up being on BBC News and uh, on TechCrunch and uh, Radio 4 and all this stuff. And I hadn't been media trained. <laughs> I was far from being an expert in anything that I was being asked to talk about, <laughs> but um, rapidly learned, absolutely loved it. And we, yeah, we launched this, this program and lots of people started applying and it was amazing. Absolutely loved every second of it. I ended up running three and a bit 
cycles of um, of the program. They're six months long each, and met thousands of people who are incredibly lucky. The, the Abbey Road business card was is is was and is very powerful. It's amazing. I I'm I'm curious to hear like a little bit more about you know about the incubator and you know what were some of the projects that 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 were incubating you know through Abbey Road Red or like you know some of the the more memorable or more exciting projects to you and yeah. at this point like you know starting to glean uh, some of the ills of the industry and you know <laughs> seeing these people trying to you know like trying to fix shit yeah it was as much as i in an, an as i said at an earlier point was was driven to understand the the forces or the problems Dur during this phase i was more being driven by curiosity of uh, about the future i suppose mm. and, and another thing to to say is that i started work during that period in the middle i started work on an ipad application fairly early days of ipads mm. um and was given a, a relatively small budget to work on uh, an iPad app that the studios would publish. Plotted timeline of the studio's history, a kind of book, an interactive book. And I, looking back on it, I massively overcomplicated things and <laughs> fell into every pitfall that you shouldn't fall into as a digital product manager. Mm. Um, but the one lasting legacy that I left behind on that project, because it never actually got released, was that I I started to catalogue uh, the history of Abbey Road in this database that I actually worked with that guy James Clark, the systems developer on, and, um, and structured photographic artefacts and stories and moments in time in this big long database. And through doing that, I became a kind of archivist and I became a historian. I was kind of a journalist, not, but not really, but looking into the real plotted history of the studios, which went all the way back to the turn of the century. So into the, into the 20th century and even right back to the beginnings, the, like the birth of recording and the, the first scratches of, of, uh, audio signals onto wax. And mm. so I had this plotted history and I, I know I'm really proud of the amount I know about the, the history of the audio technologies and so the what was driving me in the areas that I was interested in was the kind of extrapolation forward into the future it wasn't necessarily what problems can we fix or what problems do I feel like I should be fixing with innovation for the business it was more well what's happening what's cool what do we need to jump on board with and so the things that um, fascinated me at that time were around music information retrieval. So that's kind of audio listening. How do you extract metadata from an audio file? Um, that tied in with how do you then learn from that data? How do you use machine learning to build autonomous systems based on some of that data? Mm -hmm. um, and what can those systems do? Um, separately from that, I was fascinated uh, by 3D spatial audio, especially because virtual reality was becoming quite significant at that time. Mm -hmm. Facebook had bought Oculus and um, uh, all, all 
the whole game development world started being ported into into um, a first person kind of environment uh, in headset. Uh, but then if you're in that environment, you want the audio to match. And so spatial audio became a hot topic. Mm. Um, I would, I'm sure probably quite a few other areas that I'm just forgetting right now, but it was, it was around those two topics that we, that we started to focus. And um, yeah, uh, two of the companies that I'm sort of most... Uh, I, I tend to find myself speaking about the most that actually fit into those categories. So there was one company called OSIC that we supported who I absolutely loved. They they were building this pair of very complex headphones that were, that were an equivalent really of a VR headset for your ears. Mm. Um, the guys running the company had a lot of experience. They um, previously were at Ultimate Ears, which was owned by Logitech, had built a, a huge consumer brand there and were really, really well placed to get this right. They launched a, v- a very, very successful Kickstarter campaign. It was in the top 50 campaigns of all time. And um, I'm, Abbey Road played some part in that, but I had the experience of, of being with them on the journey, which was amazing. And I have a huge amount of respect for them. In the end, that one didn't work they weren't able to raise a series a round and um the company ended up actually closing and they they never shipped to their kickstarter backers hmm. so that was a highly controversial project in yeah. uh, now at least to have worked on and um yeah there were a lot of annoyed kickstarter backers yeah I um, but i yeah, I, I, I really, really enjoyed that one. So that one didn't go so well. That one went south. <laughs> but then the the one that fits in with the audio information retrieval and machine learning strand was a company called AI Music, uh, led by a guy called Siavash Madhavi. And yeah, absolutely loved working with, with those guys as well. And Siavash is an incredibly intelligent guy, had already... Uh, started and sold one AI-centered um, business, which is around generative design, 3D design, building 3D models for um, yeah various different applications like structural components or trainers, and super smart. And he started employing the same well, his his brains and some of the same approaches to to music and some problems around music. They ended up being uh, and I still don't know whether it's ever been officially announced, but it's all over the internet. Uh, they ended up being acquired by Apple, hmm. and so he he now works for Apple. So that was a that was a success a success story for sure. Um, and then there are various other companies I, I can't n- name everyone, but um, yeah, other others that I absolutely loved working with, like a guy called George Wright, who runs a company called Voclia. It's um, he actually. Uh, became a member of the Rattle uh, after being a a participant in Abbey Road Red. And uh, what he developed was a, um, and uh, you can find this all online, it's a very very successful product now, a microphone, but really with a piece of of software that would learn the idiosyncrasies of how you mimic a instrument and then do a kind of more complex or adaptive version of audio to MIDI. 
I've described mm. that really badly, but you could effectively hum a guitar line and what you'd get out the other end is a, as a guitar riff. Mm. Um, I don't know if they use this line anymore, but George back, back then when I was working closely with him used the, the, uh, the one liner of, well, the, the voice is the only instrument you've been learning since birth. Mm. So most people can beatbox a, a rudimentary drum line and, mm-hmm. or hum a, hum a trumpet, um, melody, but very few people can play the drums or, or play the trumpet. And so right. it opens up the joy of creation to, to lots of people. So really broad spectrum of super interesting stuff that I got the chance to work on, mm. um, during that phase. And, cool. um, yeah, still look back on that time with, with real fondness. Cool. Um, yeah. And then I'm curious to hear, you know, kind of what, what led to your transition from Abbey Road to, and to the rattle another space that, um, kind of became an incubator for projects and, you know, a place where a lot of, a lot of this innovation was, was being explored. You know, what did that transition look like for you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, it was, um, it was really, it was, a, a well, I got the, got the chance to meet, like I said, thousands of people and I'm incredibly grateful for that. One of the people that I met was Chris Howard, who's mm-hmm. my co-founder in the battle. And I can't remember exactly how it happens. I think he happened. I think he t- tells the story as he sent me a LinkedIn message and then I ignored him apparently to start <laughs> with. Uh, he got the feeling of just being another person trying to uh, sort of muscle their way in, into Abbey Road. But he, he kind of persisted and uh, I invited him in for a coffee and uh, he made an impression on me like he does with most people. <laughs> and uh, he always stood out as someone that I felt I should maintain a, a relationship with. And um, he won't mind me saying like he's a he's a, a divisive character. He's <laughs> in, incredibly smart. Um, he's really... Um, one of the brightest people, most productive people I know. But um, most people who are, are that way inclined also divide opinion. And hmm. so I, I remember that about Chris and um, he, he won't mind me saying all that because lots of people say that. But I I took, um, I took a couple of the companies that we were supporting through Abbey Road Red to see Chris uh, for various different pieces of advice. And he always gave really cutting really really on on point really useful advice and high value advice and so we we just kept a relationship and um he was between um sort of longer term projects around that time he was entrepreneur in residence at Techstars in london he was doing some lecturing at um i think ucl on entrepreneurship and so some some different projects but was cooking up a new business which had no name had really no structure at that point with a guy called bobby bobby bloomfield and that was the rattle it didn't have a name back then but because chris and i had formed a close relationship i i stayed close to that and um i was invited along to various different things they were hosting in the early days and, and watched watched them pitch and started to because i liked the sound of what they were building uh, it was formless really still at that point i i started offering a bit of support and made some introductions for them and i actually tried to um to encourage well i did encourage but tried to get the rattle 
to apply to join Abbey Road Red hmm. as a young startup. I was like, well, we could we could maybe help you guys. And um, Chris is a very experienced entrepreneur. He's he's run uh, companies himself. He's supported other people, and he's also run a an incubator himself as well, and, and been involved in textiles, etc. So he he didn't feel like he needed the structure of Abbey Road Red, and and said, I don't think this is for us, and I respect that. But um, all of that meant I was very close to to their journey, and it was actually um, just as well. They, Bobby and Chris managed to raise a, a pre-seed round off of really what was just a deck and some some desk research. Mm. And it wasn't until they'd raised that money uh, that we started having conversations about whether there might be a fit for me to join the team. Mm. I'd actually already. And I don't know if I've told Chris this or Bobby this, but I had actually already started thinking about it separately. I thought, well, maybe I could approach those guys. It sounds kind of interesting. And mm. I absolutely loved Abbey Road and still still do. And I could have stayed there a very long time and probably would still be very happy there. But I had this kind of startup itch. Like I said, I'd, I'd done a very small thing with my wife. I'd done a couple of other things. Um tried to manage a couple of artists and done a very bad job, bad job, tried to release some music with, uh, with a friend, uh, on behalf of other people, done a bad job of that. And but I still, I kind of had this itch that I, I really wanted to, to be involved in starting a company and I'd been looking around for an opportunity, I suppose. And, and the writer came along and thought, you know what, maybe that's, that's the one because, and this is no criticism really of, of, uh, universal or Abbey road, but I'd started to reach the limits of what, it seemed like I was able to achieve there. I wanted to scale up Abbey Road Red into um, into Universal and kind of run it more broadly or up even into their parent company. We, we were having those conversations, but um, I felt like it, it was moving a bit more slowly than I wanted my life to progress. And, and that's really, that seems to be the main reason why people leave companies is it's kind of a lack of alignment of speed. And I saw Chris and Bobby coming out the blocks and I thought, wow, to they they seem to be wanting to do a lot of the things that I want to do here and, and with the autonomy and the freedom and the backing to the, the kind of venture backing to do it. And so mm. saw it as an, as an opportunity to see through some of my ideas, like um, starting a seed fund or um, running a space or um, doing the same kind of uh, incubation and venture building with a broader range of people like artists and et cetera. So one thing led to another and, um, Chris and I got drunk one one time and sort of ended up awkwardly having the conversation and that set the wheels in motion. And originally I was joining as an employee uh, to run the London uh, space as, as the director, mm. but that quickly turned into, well, do you know what, John, I think the, the sort of the amount that you bring to the business and um, the, the, the kind of impact you're likely to have feels more like a co-founder type position. And so... They were very gracious in inviting me in as a as a late joining co-founder, and um, yeah, giving me a portion of the company uh, to reflect that vesting and everything else. Mm. And um, and so we went. So I I would never call myself a original founder of the Rattle. That that title does not I'm not deservant of that. But um, was there fairly early, and and certainly feel very much like a co-founder now. Mm. Cool. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, I mean, the rattle has always been fascinating to me because of 
you know, because of the ambition and and the energy to try to, you know, to try to take on a lot of you know, different aspects and bring them into you know into this realm of the rattle and <clears throat> i'll let you speak to that a little bit more but I'm, I'm i'm curious just to hear kind of you know the progression as after you joined to um you know the point at, at which we at which we connected you know a few sure. months ago and talking about um you know for the piece that was you know also on essential and and you know kind of talking about your trajectory from that to you know thinking about tokenization as as an opportunity and and just your your introduction to web3 and 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 hearing how your mind was starting to think about that within the context of the rattle yeah yeah for sure likewise it's always difficult but really interesting for me to go back through the history of the rattle and mm. it's been coming up to five years now so those conversations I was describing that I was having with Chris, that was around the end of 2017. Mm. So yeah, coming up for five years um, since, since that point. And like, like a lot of companies, the rattle has twisted and a lot of early stage companies, the rattles twisted and turned multiple times. And that is a point of pride. Well, it's a, we we've done it out of necessity we're also mm. proud of the fact we've adapted and, and shifted really quickly as and when necessary and but what that means is every time i step back through i, I remind myself of oh yeah wow we did try and do that thing or wow that yeah that idea that got shelved or rah, rah, rah. but to, tr to try and give the abridged version the rattle opened in early 2018 as a physical i mean people would use the word hub it's kind of a cringy corporate word but a, a hub for um generally speaking what we came to call founders we we, we never we've never managed to find an appropriate word to tie together uh the disparate sort of categories of people that we think all share a common um set of behavioral traits and common set of ambitions but founders the the best we've managed to do. Some people would say entrepreneur, some people might say inventor, some people might say creator, but we, we've we created this hub for these people that um, we're trying to make something new. Mm. So release music and, and change the world in some, some way through their art or, or communicate something or people that had, had invented something, a fundamental uh, idea that they were, they were um, developing. And so it's a real, melting pot another horrible cringe word that people in boardrooms use but uh, a real like f yeah fizzing mess of interesting people and we we have always i mean this is still true we've always tried to base what we do on um the human sciences if you will social sciences we've always tried to um base our decision making in research from the field of psychology and, and sociology and that comes a, a lot from chris's influence but also from my interests in yeah behavioral behavioral economics and um some of the more popular texts from 
the social sciences and have since become fascinated by yeah the, the writings of um Richard Dunbar and etc 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 so what we started doing fairly on was trying to be deliberate about um engineering community and so within that that chaos of different people we were trying to create moments that created and we became obsessed by um, trust and serendipity serendipity being those Mm. kind of um, unexpected moments that happen when you oftentimes in uh, sharing a physical space but um, yes sharing space with others and, and communing and exploring ideas and and trust being the out really the outcome of that that's often built through some kind of shared um agent and and the kind of a commonality through some agent and the, the rattle in this case being the agent so two two people or more saying well we're, we're both members of the rattle therefore we can trust each other let's do something together uh based off of a serendipitous moment so that and and other um other base principles uh, fed into us, us trying to be very deliberate around creating a culture, creating a, a, an environment that, that created best opportunities for those who had chosen to join. And um, we were very selective. Uh, I'm never sure whether or not saying the number of applications we've received is a point of a point we should be proud of or not. But um, we we certainly were very selective in, we ended up accepting about 5% of all applicants because we wanted a certain type of person working on a certain type of thing and we wanted to maintain a, a culture. And, um, but then, and here's the, the kind of rub, the thing that became quite influential across the first year or so at the Rattle, because we were curating, there was one force there which was acting quite counter to our, our need to, to make money, to turn revenue. Um, because our mm-hmm. our business model during, uh, during that phase was charging members to be members, and that carried on for quite a long time until fairly recently. But the the desire to curate, but the need to make revenue, were always opposing forces. Because as you can see, we mm-hmm. always struggle with well, do we just just sort of soften our curation a little bit to increase revenue, or do we not worry about revenue and and then that, plus also an internal debate around uh, the Rattle wanting to ultimately be meritocratic, uh, not wanting to be hmm. a a tool, a thing that only those who could afford it uh, were able to gain access to. So mm-hmm. during the first year, there was a lot of internal conversation around well, how how do we how do we make this. How do we how do we resolve that tension, and also how do we try and how do we move to make this thing free, um, all the while having cash uh, needs and um, etc. So we that was all kind of uh, waiting to be resolved in the background, but things were going well, and we were growing, and people were responding well, and, and people were enjoying, and they were sticking around, and more people were applying to join. So. Toward the end of 2018, we decided to raise more money. We were doing decent revenue at that point, but it wasn't covering all our overheads. Um, we were, relatively speaking, slightly bloated team because we were still in startup iteration um, R&D mode. Um, 
wasting a lot of money because we were just exploring. So we, we decided to raise more money. And with that money, we said we were going to do two things. One was open a, a, another site and uh, also explore other ways to engage with members. And that became our venture building. And I'll, I'll come on to that. But we, we um, ended up raising um, about 1.1 million pounds. So about $1.5 million which added to the half a million dollars from the first round, taking us up to about two million. And um, yeah, we committed some of that money to a US business. We've incorporated in the US, we sorted out visas. We, um, yeah, that was a whole learning experience for me. Um, I know a lot about doing business in California now, which is something I thought I'd never know about, but <laughs> I'm grateful for that. But that we spent a lot of money on that and we launched the LA business on the same model. You apply to join. You are, um, you're then part of a curated, deliberately kind of fostered community, and you get to enjoy the space and the facilities that we built, studio and production facilities. Um, but all the while, we started exploring this idea of, well, if how about if someone stops paying us? How how can we work with them in a in a different way that means that we're sharing value? Now, we didn't want to become a record label. Um, we didn't want to become a management company. So we didn't want to share in revenue. We didn't want to, sh we didn't want to take rights because those things are done already. We didn't want to iterate and incrementally improve those things. We wanted to really dramatically shift things up. And because Chris very much so, and, and I um, less so had come from the startup world where equity is the, the, the means of engagement, we thought, well, why don't we start to employ equity as the way that we um work with some members so we started to pilot that in early 2019 this was and said well you stop paying us but you incorporate so you you start a vehicle that has some some shares a limited company in the uk this is um and you give us a portion of those shares over time in some configuration and we support you and therefore, if that operation, if that limited company starts making money, um, either we as a shareholder take a dividend if that's ever um, distributed, or if that company becomes acquired or there's some liquidation event in the future, we, we get a payout like a typical shareholder would. Now, that, that kind of um, relationship is very, very common uh, across most areas of business, but just completely uncommon in music. So we tried it and we, we managed to make it work. And, we helped one member in London raise a seed round uh, in, into that limited company that he'd started. And so we thought, well, wow, this, this seems to be working. Uh, maybe there's, there's something in this for us. And so that, that became the beginning of everything else from there on. We effectively, around the middle of 2019, turned our backs on membership revenue being our source of, um, of cash or capital to, to run our operations and decided instead, you know what, we want to become, I think we want to become long-term investors and build a portfolio of equity positions in, um, yeah, tech businesses, which I often negate to mention, uh, but also artists. And that's, that's what we became known for for quite a while was, was really exploring and maybe pioneering even this model of, well, can you, can you support an artist in the same way that you support a, a early stage tech entrepreneur can you can you form the same kind of relationship and 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 treat them like a founder
And there's a huge amount to be said about that, but that became the next phase. Um, but I'll pause there in, in case you've got any questions on that. No, no, it was brilliant. Thank you. I'm excited to, you know, to hear about the next phase. Cause I, you know, I think early on in our conversations, we were talking a lot about, you know, how a token fits within yeah. that and can, you know, can potentially support it. And, um, you know, I feel like the rattle was exploring a lot of ideas that, um, just in, in, you know, in what you were doing to engineer community that have, have become kind of commonplace now within a lot yeah. you know, of web three organizations being connected in, in more of, you know, like collective governance structures and trying you know, to build trust in novel ways. Um, uh, so yeah, you know, I'm keen to hear more. Yeah. And, um, I guess I've accidentally, um, already said a lot of stuff that I'm probably gonna be able to tie in here, but yeah, we, um, we, at that point, we're very much still thinking about equity. And so this is from both sides. We were looking to sell equity in the rattle as a way to raise money to, to keep mm -hmm. going, but also looking to take equity as a means of engagement and, and long-term security. Um, kind of securing our, our interest in, in the projects we were working on. Throughout 2019, I was a fairly late entrant into the world of tokens and cryptography and whatnot. And like everyone else, uh, the kind of passing interest and I bought a little bit of Bitcoin and everything else, but really didn't start paying attention until honestly, embarrassingly late, probably around uh, kind of mid 2020, late 2020, maybe yeah yeah probably late 20, 2020 really when i started to pay attention i regret that i i really think that i and the rattle should have paid a lot more attention through uh, through kind of earlier parts of, of the development of um yeah tokenization and whatnot because and the reason i say that is because while we were fixated on equity the whole especially creator community was starting to wake up to tokenization now in one sense the two are very very similar like if if you use tokens in a particular way um they start to look a lot like shares obviously it depends how you use a token how you how you deploy the token what agreements you form around those tokens etc mm -hmm. but um we were banging the drum of yeah we sh share long-term uh, interest in your business through equity um, and having a really tough time pitching that to artists who are kind of anti-VC and anti-the man and uh, I'm, I'm being glib and, and, and talking in broad strokes but there was a real feeling of this all sounds like tech bro speak mm -hmm. uh, but over here there's this growing artist first um, adoption of, of, of tokens and everything else and we should have switched over a lot sooner that that is a regret of mine um but uh yeah what what we inadvertently had been doing was exploring some very similar themes like you say community um alternative forms of investment and ownership um yeah f through different things projects we've been doing uh, alternative forms of cutting in uh, a community and giving them some form of governance governance rights and and giving starting to give our community um a bit more of a say i'd actually before i really woke up to 
decentralized communities, I'd really started to go deep into um, cooperative structures. And that actually put me on a whole, this is during the, during the lockdown period when I started to run long distances, I, I went on a Chomsky binge and uh, started consuming as much of uh, his writing as I could as a, as a way to understand, again, some base principles and some of the underpinnings around um, social movements like cooperatives and, and, um, and whatnot. And so I was, I was really going hard on some of these topics, but all the while just completely ignorant to decentralization. And, and again, I, I feel so stupid and naive for not, for not switching over so, uh, soon enough. But yeah, we, when we finally came around to it, we we're like, wow, we, we're really well placed to now embrace tokens mm. in in some form either through either either to use um tokens in our own community to create some kind of DAO structure or as a form of security when working with member projects mm -hmm. or um as a way to raise capital for our business um or a way to uh, engage with our mentor communities so all these applications started to reveal themselves to us and we thought wow let's this this feels we were very bullish and still are bullish on um on the future of crypto um there are different parts of it more so than others but um yeah we thought well do you know what um we're all about innovation we're all about the future all about doing stuff differently pioneering new lines of thought we'd be we'd be idiots to just not give something a go and um we started exploring lots of things in tandem um one thing which is uh something we still very much intend to do at some point still firmly on our on our roadmap is um i shouldn't commit to that actually but we we really like the idea of creating some kind of tokenized fund mm. um it's problematic legally problematic but we've spent a decent amount of money on lawyers and we've done a lot of our own research into the various rules in different jurisdictions. But the way that we'd want to deploy that is we'd want to um, create some kind of tokenized vehicle that owns the, um, the interests that we have in the projects that we've supported, be they tokenized projects that we own some tokens in or mm. uh, in corporations that we own some kind of share capital in mm. or, or um, any shares in um, and so that tokenized vehicle that owns those positions um, would then be highly liquid or the, the kind of interest in, in that vehicle would be highly liquid and, mm -hmm. and could there be therefore be traded on some kind of exchange potentially mm -hmm um to act like a kind of public investment fund of some kind mm. there's a huge amount to be explored around there and I've, I've i've used the wrong language accidentally in different points there but <laughs> hopefully that paints a picture of the kind of domain that we're looking to explore mm -hmm. um over time um but the we have to get that right and we have to spend a lot of money on that and so one of the things we did in the short term was well all the while we're um, not able to issue a security token without some real head headaches, why don't we issue another form of token that achieves something fairly similar, um, but it isn't a security. 
uh, maybe has the option to be exchanged for a security token in the future, mm -hmm. but has utility in its own right. Mm -hmm. And so we um, launched this uh, project, I guess you'd call it, a new arm of the, the Rattle called the Rattle Society, which was our way or is our way of engaging with a different community of um, of backer. So not, not uh, an investor, we have investors, so shareholders who've put in money. We have members who are people that we support, but the Rats Society was and is a way for us to engage with uh, a community of people that show up, I guess, partly philanthropically, but definitely their, their purchase of a token is not a gift. But there's an element of, yeah, do you know what? I'm here because I want to support those people. I want to support those artists, those pioneering people. I want to be here for that. But they also show up because they want their token to maintain long-term value and they want it to track as the rattle continues to grow mm -hmm. and better projects are, in, well, not better, but more and more, in, more projects are incubated and those, those projects go on to do better things um, and scale. Um and they want to be able to trade out that position, um, uh, et cetera. And that's, I don't need to explain all that stuff. This is a this is going out to a community of people that really understand. But we thought, you know what, this um, that feels like a really good fit. We didn't want to tokenize our community of members at that point. We didn't think it was the right time to fully tokenize the rattle from a sort of stakeholder shareholder perspective. We thought, you know, that feels like the right thing to do at that point. And we launched the Rattle Society in, um, I think it was around May time. Mm -hmm. I can't remember exactly. And um, it was more successful than we thought it would be. Mm. And people really did show up and they responded really well. And um, there, we didn't appeal to a portion of the token buying community that um, wants to see high rap like rapid growth, the kind of PFP crowd. Mm -hmm. that, that wasn't and isn't what we're doing but we were we seemed to gain a lot of respect from people that um were a little bit tired even at that point of those kind of projects launching and, and doing what they do and saw what we were uh, pitching as a, a much more kind of stable and um sensible use of of token technology now I don't know, maybe I'm biased because I that's how I felt about it, but that, that seemed to be the way that we were we were received. Hmm. We um we didn't get we didn't have the chance well, we chose not to, but we didn't have the chance to run it for long enough to really sell lots. We just did a, a one one week flash sale. We sold enough to feel confident that there's something in it and we fully plan to sell more tokens at some point. Um but it was another experiment in, in the long line of experiments that the rattle's done. Um, in exploring the best way to support the people that we really care about, which is the, the members, those artists, those inventors, those pioneers. And um, and so who knows where that's going to go next, whether we do create this tokenized fund or we keep selling Rattle Society tokens or we raise more money through equity or we smush it all together. But it feels like um, crypto is a fairly long term now uh, cornerstone of, of what the rattles uh, from a technological and philosophical perspective going to be based mm. on cool oh it's amazing and um you know i mean 
at that time when you were thinking about transitioning, and this came after some conversations we'd had about just the exploration and you know all of the legal gray areas that that still exist and make this very complex to actually actually implement whether something counts as, as a security or or not, and yep. you know like you know actually using the Howey test and and, and determining if something has enough utility to you know to transcend the security you know question it's it's i mean there's a lot still that needs to be determined um but i'm curious at this point now that it's been a few months uh you know since that that initial experiment um where you experienced some success and 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 kind of understood this as a new direction in which you can can continue to push um you know over the past few months if you can talk about any of the insights that that you've started to cultivate and and you know try to build in certain directions um uh you know anything that you're able to share about kind of what's happening now and and you know where your head's at at the moment yeah um again i uh this is one of those i, I wish there was a super romantic compelling answer to but um <laughs> i um I, there, during that phase where we were speaking quite regularly uh this was all of these topics were front and center i was mm -hmm. highly immersed and um i haven't had the opportunity to be that engaged with all those topics since that point i've unfortunately had to uh kind of go back to some more of the the day-to-day -day of running the rattle and so a lot of my opinions and perspectives of it's not that they haven't developed at all, but they've been somewhat frozen from yeah around summertime, and uh, that's just through through necessity. We, um, I, I'd love a life where I'm I'm incredibly jealous of Sherry Who. I'm kind of intellectually jealous, uh, got an intellectual crush on on Sherry, <laughs> and I've I'd, I've had the sort of privilege of, of knowing her for a fair fair amount of time. The reason I'm jealous is because she has the space seemingly, I don't know how she does it, but has the space to um, constantly stay abreast of uh, and on top of uh, contemporary conversation around all these topics. And mm -hmm. I, I used to have that back at Abbey Road a bit more than I do right now, because right now I, I have to run the operation. I'm, loftily called the CRO of the rattle and but day to day that means I'm liaising with accountants and lawyers and sorting out payroll and hiring and firing and all that you know all that kind of day to day and it's not that I don't enjoy that I do I love it but I do miss being able to uh stare into the distance and stroke my chin and <laughs> uh and and really contemplate and and gain an understanding of form opinions on 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 topics and i'm a as i said to you just before um offline i'm an avid podcast listener and mm. i spend a lot of time with lex friedman's podcast and that that's my um guilty pleasure i suppose my intellectual guilty pleasure when i'm when i'm out running and training and uh, listening to to Lex and and the people he interviews, that's that's where I get that kick, that kind of 
st intellectual stimulation but day to day recently i've honestly just been buried so far in the detail of the rattle that i've, I've annoyingly not not had the chance to develop some of my thinking but as i say i i'm still bullish um the thing i didn't say is that we launched that nft project the same week that crypto fell off a cliff yeah right um which was we watched it unravel in real time just across and then i don't know what the rattle did in a previous life but we have had a string of very bad luck <laughs> thing that i didn't mention is when we launched the los angeles space um we launched that on the 9th of march 2020 oh, wow. that was the monday the friday trump moved to close the borders and we had to get basically the last flight out of out of california out of los angeles through barcelona being sort of frog march through the airport by people with guns and wild like we'd, the timing just could not have been worse <laughs> but um yeah the uh even though crypto is, has fallen off a cliff and, and sort of stagnated since uh that's just the crisis of confidence and whatever else. it doesn't doesn't change the fact that the from a technological perspective um tokens can be used for some very very interesting things and that, that's why i'm still bullish on mm -hmm. cool john well you know great chatting as always thanks so much for taking the time um you You're know i hope welcome. everything i hope everything continues to keep rolling you know with the rattle and keep innovating and you know keep doing good things for music and and the communities building you know building around it yeah i really appreciate the uh the invite and uh likewise love our conversations and look forward to many more absolutely let's do it all right that's it for this episode of big brother and the hodling company i'm your host mckeegan voice and you can keep up with me and all the latest web3 music trends on twitter at mckeegan that's m-a-c-e-a-g-o-n this show is a production of decentral media and you can visit us at decentral.io and remember only you can prevent and fend off big brother <laughs>